Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Hey, everybody. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Happy Thursday. Uh, hey, Eric. How are you doing on this fine um, May day? I'm doing wonderful, Mary Angela. It's uh, <laughs> nice and warm outside, although... We've been having some pretty apocalyptic weather. It'd be like really hot one minute, and it's all rainy and overcast the next minute. But hey, I mean, we're practically here at summer, so I'm having a good time. I just had uh, outdoor barbecue over at a friend's recently, and it was wonderful. So nice. I'm loving life. I'm not okay with how hot it got last weekend. That was that was not great. Um, I'm not ready for that yet. And summer's not here yet. We have three whole weeks before the 21st of June. First day of summer is the 21st of June. Well, we got the AC unit in the window already <laughs> on the third floor. So that yeah, should tell you something right there. That wasn't great. I hope we get to backpedal on that. But anyway, what's going on this day in science? Well, this day in science, May 26th. In 2007, engineers make body armor based on conch shells. So engineers at the Massachusetts University of Technology took their cue from nature, designing protective materials inspired by natural toughness and durability in conch shells. Ten times stronger than mother of pearl, apparently, the conch shell's resilience is largely due to its architecture, where a three-tiered overlapping structure grants peerless fracture and impact resistance. The researchers hope to apply their findings to equally peerless helmet and body armor technology, providing much-needed protection for folks like athletes and soldiers. But that's interesting. So they're going to, like, layer it? I didn't realize conch shells were layered. I mean, I guess you see the little spirals on them, but you don't really think so about it. So I've never really... I mean, I guess if you look at a conch shell, right, they have they have these really cool geometric patterns. Yeah. I'm sure there's tons of Mother Nature math going on there. <laughs> But yeah, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of other structures like that. It's like architecture, really, that builds in the structure. It's not just the toughness of the material itself. It's the how that material is supported. Yeah. With inside the design of the shell. Well, that was 2007. There's probably stuff out here now that was from that study. I mean, I'm sure probably using it in some way. You are listeners. Yeah, look 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 up some some, no, (laughs) no look up some stuff about body armor that you know is mirrored off of or Or influenced by mother nature yeah well i've heard about like like shark scales actually being uh, maybe not so much like body armor but the way the shark skin is designed it's what helps facilitate its ability to to move very quickly underwater and also to prevent like bacteria and small you know living organisms from clinging to their body because you know how like whales you'll see like large whales i got even barnacle growing on them. oh sure yeah but because of the way the shark's skin is actually textured and layered they're like little teeny teeth it's kind of like the little spokes that they put in the train station to keep the birds off right yep (laughs) it's like don't attach here so no exactly that's cool yeah it's totally cool this day in science (laughs) So I've got a couple things that are on my radar for the neighborhood. One I thought might be really interesting for people to know is that SEPTA has formed like a commission or 
I don't know if you call it a commission or a committee, I guess. Basically, they're pl- they're going through a um, a planning process for bus revolution. They want to basically restructure and revamp the bus situation uh, in Philadelphia. What? And yes, which, that's 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 a big deal. It's a big deal. I'm here to tell you that the bus system in Philadelphia. Oftentimes doesn't make much rhyme or reason. Um, buses don't go in straight lines like on a grid pattern. They often travel great distances, which makes it very hard because the further a bus travels, the more variables of things that can happen to the bus on that route to slow it down and to change its timing, right? So if a bus is going like eight miles start to finish, that's eight miles worth of stops and things that could slow it down people getting on and off the bus or you got to have a wheelchair accessible person so you got to put down the thing and you know let them on or maybe it's too many people or stoplights right or, yeah, or just maybe traffic. there's an, in- an incident or you know exactly mm-hmm. so that's why the 23 notoriously which is one of the longest bus routes in all of philadelphia the 23 that comes right through germantown is notoriously not on time because it's going the furthest and they cut a good chunk of the 23. So the 23 used to go from the Chestnut Hill Loop at the very end. All the way to South Philadelphia. Correct. Yeah. All the way to, so like Oregon. The, to the sports complex. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And finally they were like, this is really messing us up and we can never count on this bus. And it's really hurting the people in the Northwest because they're the ones who use it the most. The people actually taking it down to South Philly, no one was doing that. You take the Broad Street line. So they cut it and now the 23 only goes to 11th. And Chestnut Streets, which is... It goes up to 11. Correct. But that's great because that drops a whole two miles off the end of this run. Mm-hmm. But that's still a far run going from the loop to, to 11th and Chestnut. So Septa's like, all right, let's let's take a look at you know what we've got going on and who's actually using the bus. So the way they're doing this is what I find the most fascinating. They are planning to have a series of community conversations in different regions of the city including Northwest Philadelphia, to find out how we use the buses and how the buses can best serve us. So they're actually looking to make informed decisions. Correct. That's pretty astounding. So one of the first ones, the ones happening, one happening in Northwest Philly for us up here, is happening on June 23rd. So you'd have to go to Facebook and take a look. Change Germantown Group is a good group to check out. Um, You'll find a post about it, and there's a link there where you can register to be part of the conversation. It's going to be a Zoom thing so it's all virtual but this is a really great opportunity for neighbors in the community and particularly people who use the buses particularly the 23 for this instance and the h bus the h bus goes through here you know the buses that come through here to really have an impact in how they revamp this and how they make it really work for us you know i'm going to register for it i think it's going to be a a good conversation to have. And if you're interested in it, um, you can send me an email at what do you know, gtown at gmail.com. And I will send you the link to register um, if you like, or you can go on Facebook and check out the changing Germantown group. And um, it's one of their posts. That's really cool. So is it, do you know if it's just, just, SEPTA across the city? Or it is. is it, okay. It's SEPTA across the city. This information right now, the 23rd, is the meeting for Northwest Philadelphia. Got it. So I was like, that's the one we want to get in on because we live up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? I was like, cool, yeah, maybe I want to be on part of the conversation for another one. But I was like, the, the buses I most ride are the H, the 23, the L, the 94, which starts up here and goes out to Montgomeryville. Like, this is mm-hmm. this is the conversation I want to be a part of. So um, that's why I'm saying it here. And I thought our listeners might be more interested in that one. But no, yes, no, it's, really it's citywide. Cool. They're going 
area by area and having these scheduled conversations where you can weigh in and talk about it. So I thought that was really important and a good idea. So hopefully something great comes of that in the next couple of years, like a bus that gets me to work on time. Yeah. (laughs) It makes me think about like, okay, so have you seen pictures of Shanghai, China, where they have buses that the way the roads are set up along the edge of the actual road, the bus actually is like on, I don't want to say stilts, but it's like on a riser. So it actually sits above traffic and is completely independent of traffic lights. Uh, It's almost like a rail system that sits on the side of the road and and the buses just kind of hover over top of it. Conceptually, it's like, well, that makes a lot of sense. It does, yeah. But uh, again, you're talking about Philadelphia, which was birthed in an era before the existence of, well, I guess public transportation amounted to a horse and buggy. (laughs) So they weren't thinking that sophisticated, but no, still cool, I mean. They weren't. No, yeah. East Coast cities are are due for a revamp in public transit for sure. Absolutely, and I'm looking forward to see what comes from them of these conversations. Cool. So definitely. All right. So something else uh, that came across my radar: beware if you have hanging plants. If you like to hang plants out on your porch right now, tis the season for hanging plants to be stolen. What? Yes, people are definitely stealing hanging plants. In some cases, like this one, which is what. Um, interested me and why I bookmarked it was not only was the plant stolen but it was replaced with a lesser plant (laughs) exactly I was so so I was about to say the minute you said that I was gonna say are they replacing it with like Halloween decorations from last year? No, just no, a lesser plant. A lesser so the, plant. So the post says. This is so Philadelphia. It is, isn't it? <laughs> the post says, someone stole our beautiful hanging begonia plant. We just bought it yesterday and some jerk took it and replaced it with a crappy petunia plant. So someone had a petunia plant and saw their begonia plant and was like, you know what? To heck with this you know, begonia, I'm going to, or petunia, I've I lost track. That. Anyway, I want it and I'm going to trade it for this awful one. So anyway, their red begonia hanging plant was stolen and now they have this cruddy petunia plant they don't like. So um, they go on to say, I'm so mad right now. I know it's only flowers, but it's the inconsideration and the nastiness of it all. There are already 82 comments on this feed. And that's where I discovered that this is not uncommon. Most of these neighbors are saying, yeah, I have had I can't tell you how many times I've had hanging plants stolen or in some cases hanging plants just lifted down and then smashed on the sidewalk not just even because right not even well, stolen. maybe it was a failed attempt yeah. there were some helpful tips that people uh, gave on this post and one of them which I thought is really useful that I never would have thought of is to use wire so when you're hanging your plants on the hook use wire and wrap it around both so the hook so you can't take it down so and, easily right so it's right so it's complicated to get down now you could still probably lift a plant out of a planter but you could also wire your potted plant within the planter as well depending on what kind of planter you're hanging it in um, and a lot of those are like you know the hanging apparatus is like built into the bowl or whatever that's holding the plant you know when you hang it I don't know it's been a while since I've had a hanging plant you can tell it's sad that we have to have this conversation but it was nice that the neighbors were like yeah no this is real it happens but here are some things that I do to keep it from happening and the wire seemed to be the most common a lot of people back that one 
People also recommended ring cams. People recommended, you know, and I'm like, well, what do you well, do with that? Well, the ring cam seems like, that seems sort of like the, the answer to a lot of those issues because it's about people coming up onto your property. Sure, but ring cams don't stop people, right? No. I mean, because the next thing I'm going to talk about is a story that involves a ring cam. And what do you do with that information? Because the police can't investigate every plant thief. You know I what I'm know. saying? Like, you know, you send them that footage and you're like, hey, this person stole my plant. And they're like, okay, I got to deal with shootings and and uh-huh. people shooting up drugs on the street. And people need to start setting up like, like human-sized mouse traps in the front yard. <laughs> I mean, that's that's literally what it's like. This whole thing you talk about. <laughs> oh my gosh! Right. So you know, I mean, yay that the neighborhood came and and helped with some ideas, but boo that people are stealing plants. So if you're hanging plants outside right now, heads up. Try and protect yes. your plants. Squirrels and people. Right. Yeah, and might end up with a petunia when you wanted a begonia. So <laughs> just saying, be careful. Um, but then that feeds into the second thing okay. that I, I bookmarked. And that was about a ring cam footage that caught someone walking in between their house and the neighbors. So they're, obviously it's two doubles, right? Like you know we live in, but you have that sort of wide alley in between the two that don't touch each other. Mm-hmm. And their ring cam which is on focused on that alley, which surprises me, but okay, caught a person walking up into that space with a camera and taking pictures of their house and their backyard. Weird. Exactly. So that sparked a conversation that right now has about 70 comments on it about, like, yes, admittedly, that's strange. But then it's like, what do you do with that information? And is it strange? Because the first question that was asked was, do you rent the house? Yes, we rent the house. Okay, is it possible that your landlord sent over an insurance? Like, it's insurance, right? The insurance adjuster is coming over and and checking things to make sure that, like, everything's in compliance. You don't have any liability issues happening. You're not stacking up wood. Like, what happened to our neighbor who had all that wood on their front porch? And the landlord was like, the insurance guy came by the other day and saw all the wood on the porch and was like, you can't have all that wood on the porch. That's a fire hazard. Like, so could it be that? And if it is that, shouldn't the landlord let you know that somebody's going to be coming by to do that? Because again, I don't think our neighbors knew that the, that the insurance guy was coming by to look at their porch and see all the wood. Like, I mean, I guess not, because technically it's their property, right? Yeah. So I guess as long as they know, they can it do whatever they want. Depends on what's want. in the lease. Yeah, you, the tenant, don't have to be made aware they're not coming into your house. Yeah. So they were like, it could be that. Somebody else was like, it could just be a student who, you know, liked the look of that alley and was taking some pictures for art class. And I'm like, that is also plausible mm-hmm. and, and possible in our neighborhood. I mean, it is a beautiful neighborhood. It, it is. But then other people were like, no, this is criminal. This is trespassing. Take the footage to the police. File a police report. Get people involved. Get upset. You well, know, well, get into it. And were these people actually like trespassing on the property? Well, yeah, because it's, it's that, I mean... Obviously, it's the property, right? It's that space in between the two houses. Yeah. And their ring cam is there for a reason. I mean, I guess it's to see, because I think you would you would access their, like the space in between our house and our neighbors, right? Yeah, that'd be weird. Right. Like, what, what are you doing? Right. So, but then it's, again, that question, what do you do with this information? So it's, it's I would say it's split about 50-50. About 50% of the people who've responded so far think that it's, you know, Completely harmless and benign, and there's a perfectly reasonable explanation. But, yeah, I guess for it. like like what are they what are they gonna do? The people who think they should file a police report are people who are like they're casing your house to come back and break in. Yeah, that's most likely the case. 
But is it but is it most likely the case or is it most likely the case that an insurance adjuster was coming by and just taking pictures of the property or well, I don't an art know. student what, what, taking the, pictures the, in the Were they dressed in a suit and tie or were no, they No, insurance adjusters don't wear suit and ties. I mean, this I just looks know. like your what average do person. Adjusters they're, wear? they're not in a hoodie. They're not like trying to like conceal their identity. Yeah. This person just walked right up with their phone and started taking pictures. So yeah, so it's it, it, it stinks that we live in a in a time in a community well, they where probably you have saw to be someone suspicious. walking up and swapping potted plants and thought hey maybe it's <laughs> maybe that's what happened <laughs> it just makes me wonder it's like you know we want to be alert and we want to keep an eye out but you know why are we always leaping to that this must be well really clearly there's wrong. some oddballs in the neighborhood sure but also it could be perfectly normal it could like i said be an insurance adjuster whose job it is to travel around and investigate properties so anyone out there who's an insurance adjuster we'd love to hear from you yeah like what, what what's your mo and yeah well and what's the proper way to do this do you just show up and you don't tell anybody and you mm. you know hope nobody sees you or you hope they don't get freaked out if they do see you like what just happened on this post like you know yeah do, do you have a little badge do you flash your badge <laughs> i'm an insurance adjuster i mean i really don't know how that works i would love uh, I to either. i would love to find out so. i would think though like when i picture insurance adjuster i, I just want to picture him with a trench coat <laughs> just because well that's all i got that's what i was looking at so you last time we were on the air were talking about medieval torture devices medieval torture devices <laughs> and during that conversation and I think it was actually preceding that somehow carbon nanotubes came up. I'm trying to, I think it might've been this day in science. It we was talking. this day in science. Yes. And, and I'm, and I said something about carbon nanotubes and it got me thinking about batteries. And then I just thought electrical storage and just energy usage. So the last major topic I had was about food and, probably just as equally important, I would think, is energy. Having access to energy, considering in this day and age, 2022, where you have what, like we're close to, we're over 7 billion people on the planet. We're projected to have 9 billion people on this planet by Oof. 2050 uh, globally. And all of them will be primarily concentrated in urban areas. Urban areas are constantly growing and expanding globally. And as they do, the demand for energy is only going to continue to increase. So the idea of not only just energy and its importance to uh, humanity, but thinking of different types of energy, sources of energy, obviously there's you know some overlap into this whole thought of going greener and that we can talk about that but i i really just wanted to if anything touch on some some sources of energy you know thoughts around how we manage energy uh considering that we are in um if you want to call it an energy crisis or global environmental crisis they they all kind of converge they're all the same thing but what is out there and talk about some things that i'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with, but maybe some things that they aren't familiar with that are either in research and development or just getting on their own two feet. And, uh, you know, I thought that'd be kind of a cool topic. Sounds really cool. Mm. So tell us about it. All right. Well, okay. So if you think about energy consumption, 
the first thing I would think comes to your mind is, well, fossil fuels, burning coal, throwing carbon dioxide into the air, um, you know, contributing to air pollution, things like that. Uh, But what's interesting is the fossil fuel industry is still compared to other emerging renewable energies, which are still growing, but fossil fuel consumption likewise is still growing. I just had to, in my, in my research, everything is, of course, expressed in wattages here, and it made me think about Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what is it that Doc says? 1.21 gigawatts. 1.21 gigawatts. So <laughs> before this segment is over, I will tell you exactly what does, if you're trying to guess or have some idea as to what does one point what is it? 1.21 gigawatts. 1.21 gigawatts actually is equivalent to in terms of power consumption. Okay. What would you need in order to get? Uh, 1.21 gigawatts? Exactly. Plutonium. We learned that in Back to the Future. <laughs> I thought it was trash, right? Oh, well, that's when you go no, into the that future. No, that was what, use... yeah, in the future he was able to use garbage in a in a reactor that he had built for it but yes anyway that's right anyway okay so i'll just kind of go down the list here i know i started talking about fossil fuels can you think of some other sources of energy what what, what are some of the things that first come to mind so fossil fuels coal okay okay what else um solar power yep solar power definitely uh water power yes hydroelectric yes wind power Mm mm-hmm wind power Um, those are the ones I know. (laughs) Those are the ones you know, definitely. So one of the other ones that perhaps, um, you're, I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, which I would say probably trumps all those in terms of nuclear power. Exactly. Nuclear power. And not that I want to focus I was like, I don't think about that one because I don't like that one. Exactly. That's why I want to talk about it. So... (laughs) It's really amazing when you consider the output from nuclear power. So there's a really interesting TED Talk that's floating out there, and I'm sure there's a couple other ones along the same thing. But the one that I came across um, is this guy named Michael Schellenberg who's presenting. He's talking about nuclear energy, and he's saying nuclear energy is on the decline. When you look at the statistics in terms of the waste that's produced from nuclear energy— Uh, the carbon dioxide or the carbon footprint left by nuclear energy relative to the output of clean energy, it is by far compared to solar, wind, all those, even fossil fuels is, is way more efficient. But like you said, you don't like it. Why don't you like it? Well, because it's, it's, dangerous right Chernobyl right, uh, right. that's what you're thinking well Chernobyl. that is Three Mile Island and, right? and then they always talk about there is still nuclear waste and what we do with the nuclear waste there's a problem of what do you do with nuclear waste where you know it might be more efficient waste, right? We might be getting more energy for the amount of waste we're getting, but what we're getting left with is radioactive waste that has to be disposed of somewhere. So then what's the solution to that? They build these like bunkers or whatever and bury the nuclear waste like deep in the earth. Is that a good thing? No. So they actually have, they they keep small pods where they, they keep the nuclear waste and essentially you're just allowing the, um, the isotopes to slowly just kind of bleed off, I suppose. But yeah, you're right. The truth, though, is by comparison, you've got fossil fuels, which creates a lot of waste. But 
in terms of output, uh, nuclear electrical generation capacity in kilowatts, uh, and this is looking at top five nuclear electricity generation countries back in 2019. So these statistics come from a few years back, but in the United States, you get about 98 million kilowatts nuclear electricity generation billion kilowatt hours so it's a billion kilowatt hours eight that's equivalent to 800 800 billion hours a nuclear share of countries total electric generation 19 percent so it makes up about 20 percent of the u.s total electrical consumption electricity consumptions from nuclear a lot of other european countries like france for instance you see it's it's much higher but they are like you said it's it's kind of on its decline because people have this perception this really negative perception about it and a lot of it has to do with these these isolated incidents it's kind of like the way people freak out about airplanes crashing when realistically the statistic is very low right you're to, more say, likely to die crash. in a car crash than you are in an airplane crash yeah. right so when you look at solar and wind combined which again are on the rise they only make up about half of the decline that we see as nuclear power plants are being dismantled across the globe and the issue with solar and wind of course is they're intermittent right right because you got to have wind and you got to have sun yeah you got to have wind and you got to <laughs> have sun so yep. so being able to have um, an energy source that is not dependent on say the weather the tide exactly the, <laughs> the, the <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's not no bueno. Nuclear is certainly a, a, an option, and I think part of the shift is being able to build in some, I don't know, infrastructure within the culture to eliminate this fear around it. There are some thoughts around the way nuclear power plants currently are designed and taking a different approach altogether. So just in a nutshell, nuclear power plants in terms of how they generate energy is similar to how we burn coal, right? You burn coal, it heats up a vat of water, the water creates steam, the steam turns a turbine, that creates electricity. The difference is you have these radioactive rods, they are essentially activated, and then they start to generate, you know, heat energy, and then they immerse those into water, creates steam, turns a turbine, creates electricity. Some of the other approaches that I've seen discussed are instead of heating up water which is very inefficient to heat up water to create steam to create energy to turn the turbine you you get about like a 70 percent deficiency in in energy transfer from the actual energy source whether it being coal or nuclear to heating up that water so some other approaches that maybe you might not have heard of are molten salt storage uh, energy storage. You ever heard of molten salt? No, like volcanic salt. So <laughs> I'm talking salt? like table salt, like oh, sodium chloride. Okay. So sodium chloride dissolves very easily in water, but it's a salt. So it, it, it takes a lot of energy to liquefy it, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's probably hotter. I'm not sure how hot it is, but probably compared to say molten steel, it's that much hot, more gotcha. hot, right? Because it's a salt. So the, thought behind this again has to do with the efficiency of heat transfer if you study the law of entropy in physics you'll understand that heat transfer is more effective at higher temperatures and the way to get to higher temperatures is by eliminating the water and replacing it with molten salt so hmm. molten salt there's I, I there's actually 
Um, it's it's been integrated in a number of different applications. It says uses a storage medium for thermal energy. Liquid salt is pumped through panels of electric heaters, where it is heated up to 570 degrees C before it is sent to a hot storage tank or steam generator. Here, it produces superheated steam to power turbines. So it's apparently more efficient. Um, but we're still heating things up that could blow up or that could. I mean, well, yeah, I think uh, just dealing with energy. Period. Yeah, it's risky business. It's risky business. Yeah. Okay, so flip side of it, we're talking about not only fueling energy consumption, but energy storage. There's issues with renewable energies like solar and wind because of intermittency, and then your concerns about, say, <laughs> having something like molten salt, which could potentially create like some kind of hazard potentially. Uh, so then looking at ways that we can store energy. So that comes down to batteries. And we all know that um, the lithium-ion batteries, which you know fuel our favorite electronic devices, um, are potentially dangerous, as we've seen, I'm sure, from YouTube videos with people stabbing their Samsung phones. Yes, and they're also again create waste that you know they have to be gotten rid of in a, exactly. in a certain way yeah exactly so looking at other means of energy storage so this is where the carbon nanotubes piece comes in so i had mentioned carbon nanotubes before for those who don't know what carbon nanotubes are they're literally like little straws that are just made out of carbon and carbon when it's networked with itself will form like a lattice structure almost like a, a metal fence and you can wrap it around on itself so they're literally an atom thick around they're like little straws of carbon that are an atom thick around and you can stack them up literally like on a surface so that it's like imagine a bunch of straws standing on end to end stacked really close to each other the nature of the atomic structure of carbon in these tubes allows them to actually store electrical charge inside of them and hmm. much longer than say a standard battery and i think when i mentioned them before potential benefit if you think about just carbon by itself right you could use it and then when you're done with it you could just compost it because it's just it's just carbon, carbon. Mm -hmm. but it's like everything else it's slow it's a progression so a lot of research has gone into carbon nanotubes and actually coupling them with existing technology. So do you know what a capacitor is? The well, you know what a capacitor? flux capacitor is probably. <laughs> is it the flux capacitor? 1.21 gigawatts. Uh, um, what, do you know what a capacitor is? There, it's, I, I mean, I guess it's like a, it's like a junction, right? Where the, the energy comes through this junction and then the capacitor sends the energy to where it has to go? Maybe not. So capacitors, are probably half of what makes up all the electronic components in any given electronic device. They can be used for many different things, but in this case, we're talking about using them to store energy. So what, uh, say, capacitors do, and I'm thinking my guitar amplifier sitting behind me, they have what are called electrolytic capacitors. These have a positive side and a negative side. So in a capacitor, you have two metal elements that are separated by an insulator, almost like a battery. And what happens is you apply a charge to one side, it creates an equal but opposite charge on the opposing plate that's not touching it. Mm. So it creates a charge potential on it. Well, they use those for normalizing power supplies and electronic devices so you don't get that intermittent 
um, 60 cycle bump, 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 bump from the AC coming out the wall, right. electricity. But larger capacitors are used primarily for energy storage. So this is where the carbon nanotubes come in. They've been incorporated into capacitor technology for that purpose to maximize on energy storage. So that's That's cool. That was, yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting one. Something that maybe you would have never, ever conceived of, viruses. You're like, For energy? what? Viruses? This yes. seems like a terrible idea. Of talking <laughs> of, of accidents and things ruining our our world and environmental impact, I don't think we should use vaccine. I mean, viruses as energy sources. Well, you saying. know, I mean, it could be the the start of the next plague. But if used properly, mm-hmm. we could maximize. So let me let me just take a step back. First of all, I think a lot of the approaches that we have taken for energy management are built on historical thought and construct using um, basic inorganics when really the truth is I think it's moving towards more organic biological based sources for energy but the first step to getting there is using viruses for power so there's a really cool article in BBC News about this so it it talks about scientists um, having developed a way to generate electricity using viruses they built a generator with a postage stamp sized electrode based on a film, a small film of um, specially uh, engineered viruses. So when a finger tapped the electrode, the viruses would convert the mechanical energy into electrical energy. So the way it works is, uh, I mean, there's still some more research that needs to be done around this, but um, uh, my understanding is the virus that they used uh, is researched on an M13 bacteriophage, which means that it, it targets bacteria cells by nature. Uh, but it's denied, benign to human beings, right? So it eliminates the whole human plague issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is actually Best a team. plans. <laughs> I know, Nature right? finds a way. <laughs> right. Just saying. Okay, Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this, this team actually in Berkeley, they use genetic in, genetically engineered techniques to add four negatively charged molecules to one end of the corkscrew-shaped protein that coats the virus, right? So, you know, as you know, just from talking about COVID, there are all these surface proteins on the outside of a virus. So these additional molecules increase the charge difference between the protein's positive and negative ends, boosting the voltage of the virus. So the they actually would stack layers of these viruses on top of each other and then essentially connect it to this electrode and you could actuate with mechanic, you know, mechanically pressing on it and it would generate a current through this device and I, I it's interesting because i I've, I've come across that before in some other research just tied around uh viruses and actually used for um, medicinal purposes but uh i thought that was really kind of interesting it is i mean i'm i'm not opposed to you know i mean if they can make it work and it's efficient and doesn't cost a lot of money doesn't create a lot of waste okay but i mean i'm I'm just saying, like like you said, okay, it's it's har- <laughs> harmless to humans. There are a lot of things they think are harmless to humans, and they're not. <laughs> they they still have they they still create waste and they still cause harm in some way. So I'm skeptical, but interested. I mean, I think that's interesting, but yeah. So how much power is one gigawatt? Uh, we want a gigawatt. Giga, well, gigawatt, gigawatt. <laughs> okay, same thing. It right. should be the same thing. So how much power is 1.21 gigawatt? I will tell you. It is equivalent to 3.125 million photovoltaic 
PV panels, solar panels, 3.125 million solar panels. Make up a gigawatt? Good yeah. Grief. Based on representative silicone model panel size of 320 watts. Now, it's also equivalent to 110 million LEDs. So based on typical performance, a light-emitting diode, an A19 lamp, is roughly 91 lumens per watt and consumes about 9 watts of energy. So it's 1.21 gigawatts is equivalent to 110 million LEDs. Last but not least, equivalent to 2,000 Corvette (laughs) Z06s. So according to the automaker's website, the Chevy Corvette Z06 engine delivers 650 horsepower 2000 of those engines would equal 1.3 million horsepower or 1.21 gigawatts gigawatts there you go well thank you that was very educational well i I enjoyed that i still don't like nuclear power (laughs) as most of the globe does not right 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 all right well uh stay tuned we're gonna take a little break and we'll be right back with uh, who are the musicians in your neighborhood we got a good one today stick around You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. All right, we're back. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It is time for one of my favorite segments, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And we are so excited to be joined today with Tony Washington. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. We're so glad you could make the time. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been making music? Where are you from? Uh, Well, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I've been in Philly for years and years and years. I am a vocalist. I'm a writer. I'm a producer. I am the president of the Philadelphia Blues Society as well as the Philadelphia Jazz Society. Combined, we have close to 5,000 followers all over the world. Most of the followers are in Pennsylvania, which is a good thing. I also... um, seek out opportunities for the for our followers who support our Facebook page and our uh, YouTube channel. But that's basically it. I, I uh, create opportunity for people. I do a lot of events. I try to stay as in touch with the community as I can and, and create community events, family-friendly events. And that's about it, I guess. I mean, what else? <laughs> so you said you lived in Pittsburgh. When did you move to Philadelphia? early 70s officially okay early 70s and and I, I might add that I'm well over six decades so therefore it's been a it's been a long time I do go back to visit but it's been a long time did you yeah. come here for the music what what brought you here my parents uh, got jobs in Philly so nice. we moved to Philly and um I kept saying when I get old enough I'm going back but I never I thought about those hills and how cold it gets. <laughs> and Pittsburgh is so isolated. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I, I came to Philly. Um, initially, um, I just wrote. I wasn't a, a singer, per se. I wanted people to, to sing my music, and I couldn't really find anybody to sing the music. But my mother encouraged me to take voice lessons and piano lessons and I studied with a classical voice instructor, which was good. Then she urged me to join a band that was an R&B band. <laughs> so that was interesting with that background, with that voice and mm-hmm. <laughs> going into R&B. So I had to make some adjustments so that I could fit in. You know? Right. And then from that point on, I started 
forming different bands and learning how to book. I got into jazz probably late 80s, early 90s, and I was fortunate enough to hook up with a musician by the name of Chappie Washington, who at the time was one of the top piano players in the city. Okay. And people used to always think we were married because we were together all the time, but we weren't. And they would call me Tony Washington. So I said, well, you know what? That's good enough. I don't really want them to know my personal. Oh, <laughs> my, I love it. I love it. <laughs> my, my government name. I just, so we wrote probably 50 or so songs together. We had some of them recorded uh, by other artists. And um, I, start, I, t I attended a lot of jam sessions, open mics, talent nights. Sometimes I would play. Uh, some of my originals on the piano, not very often, mm -hmm. but I, I, it depended on how much I had to drink. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you're right here in the neighborhood, right? You're right in Germantown. Yes. All I right. am in Germantown. When I initially came to Philly, we lived in North Philadelphia. Then we moved to Germantown. Then we moved up to Mount Airy and I stayed in Mount Airy for many, many years. Um, I left and went to Ohio for a little while came back and moved to Germantown. <laughs> you couldn't escape Philadelphia. Just drew you back no. in. All right. No. Oh, that's awesome. So like, what is, I'm just curious, like, uh, so you're in the neighborhood, were there jams that you were hitting in, in within the vicinity or were you traveling all throughout the city? Yeah, for the most part, there weren't any, any jams um, in Germantown that I can recall. Yeah. Um, I used to go to West Philly and I would sort of like bar hop, especially on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. I might start at Natalie's, which was is on um, Market Street. I don't recall what market, but it would be three o'clock in the afternoon and I would stay there till six and then I would go to Sir Richard's and then I would go to BQ shop. So there were different places to go, to go, especially on a Saturday. Right. And then at one point there was a jam session um, on um, at Broad and Islandy at a place called Brett's. Brett's was very popular. Okay. And it was it was very small. And what was unique about Brett's was they didn't have a stage, but he designed a stage that was collapsible that he would put up an hour and a half before the actual jam. And it was weird because the stage was built over top of the bar, like you. Oh. <laughs> You you know, you walk up these steps to get on the stage and if you look down you would see the barmaids <laughs> you know, serving people. So and and it, that ran for quite a long time, you know, and it was it was a good a good um jam session and it was jazz. Nice. And yeah, it was a good one. I'm telling you, it was good. And I met so many people. I worked with people who have traveled all over the world, people who have worked with um Grover Washington, Nina Simone. Um, Michael Jackson, mm -hmm. um, Natalie Cole, people that you just wouldn't wouldn't expect would be in the vicinity, you know, of Philly. And they were everyday people, and they would come to the jam sessions and get their drink on and do their jam, and, and it was just wonderful. It was it was a whole different community, a, a, an extended family. You know, yep. we looked out for one another. We would get gigs. I mean, I got so many gigs that were like out of Philly, like you know, doing going into like Bucks County, Montgomery County, Chester County. And this was all by networking with the musicians that were in Philly. Right. 
Right. So yeah. you're actively playing out now, right? Yes, I am actively still performing. I, I do a lot of private engagements for the most part. I also do startup jam sessions for blues and jazz, you know, and um, the last startup I did was at a place in Hatboro. And um, now they're doing pretty good. Initially, there was three or four people that were coming there. Right. <laughs> now, and and you, you built it out to be a pretty big event. What's the name of the, the place again? It's the the Crooked Eye. Okay, right, the Crooked Eye in yeah. Hapro. Yeah, so it's it's Crooked every Eye. it's on Wednesdays. It's on Wednesdays now. When I started it with a drummer, uh, one of our uh, um, members, his name is Jim Bowman. Jim and I started it. The Crooked Eye contacted me, and they wanted to do a blues night, but they didn't know who to look, you know, how how to find anyone, and so I looked within the Blues Society. And I couldn't find anybody that wanted to do it. So I said, well, I'll do it until we find somebody. And in the process, Jim and I started promoting it and building it up. And it turned turns out that, you know, once the pandemic hit, me being an old lady, I got a little scared. So I decided to back up. And I told Jim if he wanted to continue on, that's fine. I will support it. But I have to be very careful. Right. You know. Yeah. So right. then he, he found people within the Blue Society and they moved it to a Wednesday night, which is great. I mean, just keep the music going. Let's talk a little bit about the Blue Society. So when did it start? Were you one of the original founders? Did you take over from some other people? What's what's the history yeah. there? Well, initially, there was a Blue Society some years back. And there there's two people who are in the current Blue Society that know way more about that than I do. But um, I want to say about 12 years ago, um, I was visiting my sister in Ohio, who is cuckoo about the blues. And and she would take me to these blues clubs, and I would see all these great people. And she would get up and sing. And I would say to her, how do you do that? <laughs> so she started telling me. She said, well, you're a singer. You can do it. Well, she encouraged me. Mm-hmm. And I think she encouraged me based on the drinks that she was having. <laughs> 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 she encouraged me. And... um. I would go back, you know, and, and visit because I loved this so much. I loved the, you know, the, the atmosphere. And so one day she said to me, don't they have this blues or a blues community in Philly? And I said, I never really thought about it. This is like 2010. And I, I said, I, I, don't, I don't think so. So I started asking around, you know, where the blues is. And they said, well, you can go to Warm Daddy's. You can go to Bob and Barbara's. Yeah. You can go to the Tritone, but there wasn't really per se a blues, you know, a real blues community. It was they they had blues every once in a while or whatever. So I started trying to find the jam sessions and found that there was um, at that point, there were two in the city. One is at Second and South, which is the Twisted Tail. And yep. that's run by Mike. Yep. 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 Know that one. And and Mike is very yeah he's very supportive of what I do and you know ready to be on the board and all of that what we're doing and then the other one was was Warm Daddies and that one was run by Randy Lippincott and Randy's a a fantastic musician and he is I don't know if you're familiar with Shamika Copeland but oh I know Shemeika, I've I've met Shamika Copeland yeah yeah I I have too so uh, I believe that's uh, his goddaughter so really. 
I did not. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So Randy was running that one. And initially, I have to be very honest. When I would go in and say, you know, I'm Tony from the Philly Blues Society, most of them would look at me like I had antennas coming out of my head. <laughs> you know, and it may be because for so long there was nobody representing once the other blue society disbanded or whatever. And they weren't taking me seriously. They really weren't. And so I had to keep going back with a smile on my face yep. saying, hey, I'm here to sing some blues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I just had to keep going back. And as they got used to seeing me go back, they started opening doors and, you know, like, you know, embracing what I was doing. Now, what I found were there were no people or I should say few people that looked like me. A woman of color, Hmm. you know, a person of color, very few. And so I started asking and within not just Germantown, but different sections of the city. uh, Do you you like the blues? No, I I don't really like the blues. Well, well, why why not? Yeah. Well, because it, it, it just reminds me of slavery and this and that. I said, but, it, you know, this is the culture and there's so much history there and the music. And I said, they say, oh, I like jazz. I said, well, don't you know that jazz comes from blues? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, oh, I like R&B. Don't you know that R&B comes from blues? And and so, you know, that con- that was a whole different conversation. No, I don't like it because of what it reminds me of. And so I didn't argue with people. I just said, okay, well, you know, maybe you'll get to know the blues and you'll get to like the blues, you know. So. It's it's a niche, definitely. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think part of it is the simplicity of the blues. You've got essentially a three-chord foundation to most of the songs. <laughs> right. Not that, you know, you, you can certainly embellish beyond that, but I think that that in itself, maybe it's like, I don't know. Because yeah. R and B takes it a step beyond. It's it's everything, like you said. It kind of is birthed from the blues. It's sort of yes. like blues two point takes it to the next step. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and even rock and soul. Oh yeah. Come on. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, there's that. The, there's the blues there, y'all. And so, <laughs> so that was that was. You know, I would try to get folks on board with it, not just black people, but people, because I like the blues. Yes. You know. And, and um, they, I was selling, but they weren't buying, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I continued on my path and started with um, myself and ten people on the page, and now we have over three thousand. Nice. Mm-hmm. nice. And then a couple of thousand on the uh, jazz site, uh, jazz page. So tell us about those sites. Um, you said it's a it's a Facebook page. We have a Facebook page for the Blues Society as well as the Jazz Society. They're two separate ones because some people feel insulted when you put those two together. Sure. But again, they're the same, they come from the, the same mom and same dad, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this um, is specifically the Blues Society of Philadelphia, Philadelphia and Jazz Society of Philadelphia. That's exactly right, okay. yes. And I, and I do work with a promoter named Leo Gadsen who works with me with the jazz. He does a lot around uh, around the city in terms of uh, shows and keeping that keeping the music going in the community. And not a lot of people know that, know who he is, but he really is doing a terrific job. And there's another, uh, there's two other female promoters, um, Aquila Jamal, she uh, promotes jazz, and um, Andrea um, Jackson, she promotes jazz. So what I've been trying to do at least over the past two or three years, is pull all of us together mm-hmm. 
you know, so that we can um, not only promote, but educate, you know, and, and let people know that there are some local promoters who are trying to keep the music alive. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Thankfully. So is that the best place to, you know, to, to check in and see where, where things are going on and you list events and things there? Yes, yes. Great. I mean, we, we do have a website, the phillybluesociety.com, but for real, the best place to look is on our Facebook page, and it's Philly Blues Society. Excellent. And you can get leads. I mean, if you're a musician and you're, you're new to the city and you want to find out where the blues is, most of the blues, I would say 99.9% of the blues is actually in different counties. It's in Hatboro, it's in Delaware mm -hmm. County. Chester County, it's in Montgomery County, but what I'm trying to do now is to bring it to inner city, mm -hmm. you know, and I do have a plan to do that, mm -hmm. and I, I am working with some promoters who book between 500 and 700 dates a year, okay, yeah. so they're, then they're very interested in working with Philly Blues Society, so oh, that's excellent. Yeah, well, so, so I had to leave the crooked eye because I'm going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, let's uh, maybe switch gears here for a moment and just talk maybe more specifically about you and your music. So uh, you had shared with me, you've got uh, a Reverb Nation page, and that's, I think, where you have your music right now, right? If people are looking you up, they yeah. would look up, it's Tony, T-O-N-I, Washington, T-I-N, Mm -hmm. Right, and that's on Reverb Nation. So you've got looks like you've got four tunes up here. Uh, I've got four tunes, yes, okay. and I have some more that aren't on there because I just produced along with a musician named Joe DeFeo, who's one of our mem uh, members. We produced two um, original blues, um, yeah, blues uh, compilations of artists that are in the Blues Society. So we just we just nice. finished up the second one. Nice. So that'll be going up soon. Okay. Mm -hmm. But today we're going to listen to one of these four tracks, right? Okay. So so yeah. which which song are we going to play for our listeners today? Play Lay Some Love On Me Tonight. Ladies, you know how it is when you have someone that just stays on your mind long after you think it's over? told me I was his queen. And with the age of the cell phone, I recently picked up mine to call him to tell him how I felt. And this is what I said.
Yeah, I'm okay with that song. That song's great. I love Thank it. Thank you. It was a good choice. I, good choice. I, I did it from the comfort of my living room when I, when I had my home studio. What sort of gigs do you have coming up? You know, where yeah, can people like find people? you? Well, we have the uh, community blues series that we do spring and summer. And that's at Albury Arboretum, which is a great place. If you've never been there, yeah. uh, you need to go because it's family friendly. And we do it once a month, the last Friday, usually the last Friday of the month, um, May, June, July, August. And the first concert will be Memorial Day weekend. And I'm looking forward oh, nice. to that. So that's yeah. tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. yes. And um, on one of those shows, we have um, Georgie Bonds. I don't know if you're familiar with Georgie. But Georgie is an icon in the blues in Philly. Okay. And he was he was in, I don't know if you've seen Concrete um, Cowboys, but that was shot here in Philly. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yep. And Georgie, who lives in Germantown, who probably should get an interview too because he's just fantastic, he um, was in Concrete Cowboy. Oh, nice. You know? Yeah, yes. And he's he's just a great guy and he's a, a terrific performer. So he'll be on one of the concerts. I think that that's the the July um, the, the, the 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 June or July concert. I'm not really sure, mm-hmm. but yeah, we're, that's what we're doing. And then we're doing a um, the same weekend um, from Guns to Guitars. Okay. From Guns to Guitars, and that's going to consist. We're doing a workshop that's going to be in August. All right. Well, thank you so very much for being with us. This was a really great uh, a chat, and I learned a lot about the Philadelphia Blues Society that I didn't know, so I'll be sure to check them out online yeah. as well. And thank you for your time yeah. and sharing thank your song you. with us. Yes, thank you. I appreciate you both. Thank you so very much. And I look forward to, well, Eric, I met you. <laughs> I, I, look, I look forward to seeing you again real soon. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This was a this was a great show. I learned a lot. We talked about the neighborhood. We met a cool local musician and a society I didn't know about. I, I think it's great. How are you feeling? The the blues is alive in the city of Philadelphia. It sure is. Yeah. If you have some thoughts out there, listeners, please drop us a line at what do you know gtown at gmail dot com or hit us up on Instagram and Facebook at what do you know about that. We would love to hear from you. And just as an additional point here, if you are an artist and musician and would like to be featured as a guest musician on Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood, please Absolutely. Email us. us. Contact us. Absolutely. Reach We'd out. We'd love to spotlight you. Yeah. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks See for ya. listening.